Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I want to talk energy here. I don't, we'll talk fossil fuels. We'll talk oil, gas, all that kind of stuff. But I also want to talk solar. And we can do that with Rob Barnett, senior analyst. He's a team lead for all the European energy stuff that comes out of Bloomberg Intelligence. And I, I initially said earlier, the worst haircut on, on Wall Street. But it could, in the eyes of many, be the best uh, haircut on Wall Street. And you haven't seen it, go YouTube uh, some of Rob's uh, cool video clips. Rob, uh, thanks so much for joining us here. What do your institutional investors want to talk about? Do they want to talk about Brent crude at $72? I'm sorry, $76? Or do they want to talk about solar and wind and that kind of stuff? What do your clients want to talk about? Look, it's all of the above. We've got a, a investor base that is really excited about what the oil market could do in 2023, but uh, solar is also really hot. And in our view, at least, the way we look at it here at BI, there's nothing incongruous about the idea that you could uh, perhaps have a, a bull run in the oil market and also have solar demand growing like crazy. And so that's really how we see the world next year. We've got a very strong call on how fast solar demand is going to grow. It's going to be the fastest growing segment of energy by far. But uh, the oil space looks pretty uh, tight as well. you got a tight set of supply-demand fundamentals, and uh, our, our team that looks after the oil guys, uh, they see a pretty tight market. Yeah, I mean... I think it's interesting, Rob, that, and I can understand why at first glance you would think that um, solar and oil are competitors, but in the now, they're not, are they? It's pretty easy to see uh, a world where everybody wants to invest in solar because it's the future, and we still need to pay as much as is necessary to get the oil that we, that we ha- have to run our economy now. Yeah, that's right. I think they're very loosely competitive at the moment. Over time, that'll grow. But right now, almost no oil is used in the power sector, a very tiny amount. And so basically, the the extrapolation to how you think about them maybe competing would be as electric vehicles, uh, it penetration grows through time, perhaps you'll have more EVs being charged with grid resources, including solar, and you, therefore you get a little bit more competition. But that's that's the longer future. That's really very marginal in the here and now. You know, I was talking to Ola Helenius this morning, the CEO of uh, Mercedes-Benz. And um, one thing that's interesting is... Uh, they are in a big push to put electric charging stations at gas stations all around the world. But gas station owners are not. You know, I remember when <laughs> we interviewed Ben Van Burden from Shell and he's like, oh, yeah, we're doing it. It's just hard. It's like expensive and we got to find the time and it's on the schedule somewhere. But come on, give me a break. 
you know that they don't want to do it. Otherwise, it would be done already. Why, why aren't there electric charging stations at every single gas station, uh, you know, in the Western Hemisphere? I think folks are, frankly, still trying to figure out the business model. Uh, when you look at a company like Tesla, you've got the supercharger network, and there really just isn't an equivalent that has been built out for any of the other OEMs. They're essentially relying on those traditional businesses, and I think there's a lot of finger-pointing going on You know, where you've got the utilities who are wanting to dabble in it. I mean, I mean the electric utilities, but you've also got the uh, traditional uh, fuel retailers who are also experimenting with it. And it doesn't really seem like anyone's found uh, the right formula for how to make money at it. And I think that's why you see some of the reticence there. Yeah. I mean, I can't drive five minutes without seeing a gas station. That's good when I'm driving a 6.2 liter V8. Naturally Um, aspirated. But the thing is, there's these huge networks of those everywhere. And if they could make the same margin on electricity that they could make selling, you know, premium unleaded (laughs) gasoline, they would definitely already have installed them. But I, but I think that that's, this is a business model question. It's not something to lose sleep over. In fact, I think fuel retailers typically have pretty slim margins on the fuel. They make their money when you pop in to buy the candy bar or the soda to go with it. And so there's no reason that you can't have that uh, with an electric vehicle as well. And I, you know, I think through time, these things will sort themselves out. Right. I'd also say most electric vehicle charging probably going to be done at home. You know, you you certainly need lots of electric vehicle charging for the long haul trip, you know, that you would take uh, occasionally. But your daily charging is probably at your garage unless you live in a city. Cities are the hard part of the problem. Rob, 20 seconds. How tough is the uh, the winter going to be in Europe? You're based in London. You know, this winter looks okay. I, look, we're in a bit of a cold snap right now, and that's pressuring uh, the gas market and power markets. But the the general view is that we've got enough gas to get through this winter. Next winter might be a little bit more challenging, actually. All right. Good stuff. Rob Barnett, senior analyst. Uh, he leads our team of energy research folks over in London for Bloomberg Intelligence. I got to see this haircut. Oh, yeah, you got to go check it. It's awesome. He's out there. Uh, and he is super smart on all that energy stuff, including the policy uh, of energy policy and the regulation of the energy space. So we're fortunate to have him at Bloomberg Intelligence. Again, B.I. Go to get some of the best research on Wall Street. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? 
With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. We had some eco data today. We had the PPI coming in hot, and then we had the UMish data coming in uh, right after that. If you type in EcoGo on your Bloomberg or WecoGo, the University of Michigan, W-E-C-O-Go okay. is okay. a great way to do it. Uh, and, and then you can pick out by flag um, the country for oh, I like the flag. which you okay. want to see the data. Okay. Anyway, uh, UMish, uh, current conditions, stronger than expected, sentiment, stronger than expected. So... Um, Inflation is hot, but so are expectations. Let's bring in Anika, Annika Trion. Um, she is the chief economist for Van Lancia Cap Kempen um, to talk about what this data means to us. Annika, thanks so much for joining us. What do you think first about inflation? I mean, do we all agree that inflation looks like it's coming down and the Fed has to some extent got this under control? Yeah, well, I think the point is, and this is also why markets have had a good time since the second half of October, I think one thing we know for sure is that we've surpassed the peak in terms of rates of increase of prices. So in terms of, you know, the, the incremental increases in inflation, if not actually the fact that inflation, inflation has peaked. And the same goes from an interest rate perspective. And I think the one thing, there's a lot of Fed bashing that's been going on because they've simply reacted too late, etc. But the one thing that the Fed does seem to have under control is an anchoring of the long-term inflation expectation. And that's very, very important for the market. Annika, you know, one of the other issues is, in addition to inflation, uh, and again, we'll get some CPI data next week, is kind of recession outlooks. I wonder from your perspective where you sit as you think about maybe European uh, economic growth, U.S. economic growth. What's your recession call? Yeah, I mean, it looks like, you know, economic contractions are inevitable. I think it's more of a question of how long, how deep, how painful, exactly when, and quite frankly, that's that's more of an art than a science because it's very, very hard to predict those factors. Clearly, Europe is in for a much tougher time than the U.S., given that the general strength of the U.S. of the European economy is clearly a laggard. I mean, let's remember that pre-COVID, you know, Europe would actually it was almost heading into a recession anyway. And this big pandemic rescue plan was very uplifting for Europe. But that was obviously um, a short-lived rescue plan by definition. So I think that that's the point. I think that means that. You know, with a higher rate environment, which makes economic conditions tougher, what we have to do, spend more time on is trying to figure out the calculations as to what exact impact on the real economy are these interest rates having. And because they've gone up so quickly, I think we sometimes forget to make those calculations. In terms of the China reopening, um, does, does that play into your calculus uh, of global growth? It seemed like you know, we were all hoping for it for so long, and it seemed like we thought that would underpin a huge jump in demand, but that hasn't played out in market pricing. Yeah, and I guess that the point is that the path of reopening for China is not that straightforward, because obviously the zero COVID policy has lasted much longer than many people had expected. And the reopening is certainly with hiccups, so it's not a simple straight line that you can just, you know, open the lid of the box and then bam, comes this explosion of demand. But that clearly, um, that clearly will be a supporting factor. You could argue that that could also be, you know, a full reopening story. It could also be dangerous from an inflationary perspective because 
quite frankly, we've had an inflation problem without one of the world's largest drivers of demand really participating in the economy. So what will happen to energy prices once that gets going again? On the other hand, that also alleviates some supply chains. So it's, 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 it's something that we have to work our way through. So, Annika, you know, I'd love to get a sense of just kind of um, where you think the Federal Reserve needs to be. Um, you know, I think, you know, again, we're getting some inflation data uh, that is, you know, as you suggested earlier, it shows signs that it has peaked. It maybe the peak is in our rearview mirror, but it's still there. How do you think the Federal well, Reserve? And this policy is supposed to have what come and show its effects three to five quarters from now? Yeah, exactly. So what do you think the Fed's going to do, Annika? I think the point that you just made is a really valid one. So because the world is so volatile, things are changing so fast, we're forgetting some of the mechanics. And to your point, there's a seriously significant time lag between Fed policy action and how the real economy should react to that. It's not as if, you know, a 75 basis points lift should suddenly impact next month's inflation reading. That's not how real life works. And I think taking that into account, the danger is that you're working off the Fed is working off a signal board, which is of actual data versus predicted data, i.e. the Fed is reacting by definition late to the game. And I think the Fed has had no choice but to do this and to continue to do this because the biggest issue the Fed had was a credibility issue. And if markets don't believe that our central banks can manage inflation, we've got a bigger problem to deal with. And that's why the fact that long-term inflation expectations have been anchored thus far is very, very important. And that's why the Fed will probably rather go on for a little bit longer in order to make sure they can maintain that. But why go on for, I mean, do we really need another 100 basis points of tightening at this point? Well, I think I think it will be a delicate balancing act. So on one hand, you know, to your point, if you keep tightening away, you're, you know, you're triggering pain into the market that's going to take a very long time to correct and why inflict that level of pain. On the other hand, the risk of pivoting too quickly and therefore unhinging that anchoring of long-term inflation expectations can be even more dangerous because the risk of then having to do a U-turn because the next inflation reading is actually higher than expected because, I don't know, the China reopening has led to a bigger surge in demand than expected. Um, that could actually end up inflicting more danger into the economy. So I think it's this awkward, delicate balance which you know, means probably the Fed will probably go on a little bit longer than the market might expect. The Fed pivot might be a little bit further out there than people expect. But at a certain point, of course, you know, the rate of change, we've passed that. We've passed the peak of the rate of increase of rates, that's for sure. Annika, I, I understand that you're... Annika, I understand that you're based in Amsterdam, is that right? Yes. Okay, so give us the feeling, you know, on the ground... How are consumers, how are companies thinking about kind of the war in Ukraine, uh, a tough winter ahead in terms of energy? What's the, what's, what's the feeling across Europe uh, based upon kind of the folks that you interact with? Yeah, well, the sentiment has sort of turned again with regards to energy, because obviously we've all had a relatively benign winter. And all those sort of, you know, scary stories as to, well, we've got reserves of energy, but is that going to be sufficient? So far, so good until the last couple of weeks, right? And now we see, you know, temperatures going into minus. It was minus this morning, for example. People are waking up and realizing, okay, I've managed my energy bill at home thus far because it's not been that cold outside. But wow, the temperatures dropped. So there's 
definitely nervousness around there. You know, we've had you know some of the, lo- the local, the largest energy suppliers, literally pointing out to the fact that there's a huge percentage of their client base who are, are likely to go through cash flow problems from a family perspective. I mean, you have starters that are entering the economy into their job market who says, well, my energy bill is not that different to my rental price of my apartment, So, especially for the low energy label buildings. So it's, it's, it's scary. It's, it's complicated. Having said that, you've got this sort of juxtaposition, I think, in many, in many countries, in many cities, where you've got all of those concerns and, you know, recession seems inevitable in Europe and obviously the gas prices, etc. On the other hand, try and book a restaurant on a Friday night. It's packed. Right. Try and book a holiday for yourself. It's fully booked. Yep. So it's this bizarre juxtaposition. So, Annika, get Taylor Swift tickets. Exactly. Annika, I'm not sure if you're a football fan, but the Netherlands has a, a football match. Uh, he means soccer. In a few hours. And I'm going with the football because I'm speaking with a European. Netherlands against Argentina. That's What's correct. the feeling within Amsterdam on the street today? How hyped up is the average you know, Dutch, Dutch fan? Very hyped up. I mean, this, <laughs> is a, this, is, this is a very big thing for the Dutch. There'll be orange plastered everywhere and very excited. See, I told you the Dutch. I mean, I... Dude, I know. they love they, they love they, soccer, and it's such a small country, but they produce so many good soccer players. I don't know how they do it, but it was my pick, is my pick in this year's World Cup. So I'm looking pretty good here, but we'll see. Argentina's well, going to be tough. They definitely destroyed the U.S. Yeah, the only goal we scored against them looked like it was an accident. Kinda. Well, I don't know. We're 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 coming up there. Annika Treyon, chief economist, international event, Lonshot Kempen, based in Amsterdam. Let's talk to uh, Vince Signorella. He does that market stuff for us. He's a market strategist. He spent years on the street trading all kinds of things. Uh, we don't really want to ask too many questions about that, but uh, he's with us now, Vince Signorella. Hey, Vince, you get the inflation print today. Um, I, I guess that gives the the Fed some room to continue to be hawkish here. What was your take? I, I don't think so, actually. It's just one number. It's PPI. I put a little bit more weight on CPI next week, which is expected to moderate. If that comes in hot again, I think the Fed still sits um, sits where they are with 50 basis points next week, uh, potentially 50 basis points in February. But as the data I'm looking at and a couple of people I'm talking to, uh, the expectations come January. A buddy of mine in the South Bay Research out in San Francisco sees jobless claims jumping in late January, and that uptick will pull in uh, forecasts for rate cuts uh, next year. So if he's right and we get jobless claims uh, going higher from now into January, that is the Fed's, uh, that's what the Fed's watching these days, the mm-hmm. jobs. I mean, what? Uh, if, how can you claim yeah. joblessness when there's over 10 million job openings out there? Well, the point, the point that he makes, and I probably would argue the same thing, is that, you know, as you're heading into a downturn, which is largely predicted, uh, employers stop hiring, and then that's followed by layoffs. And while there's a delay in white-collar jobs, which are obviously the higher-paying jobs, uh, they then surge uh, in, in layoffs going into that. So if that trend holds come, you know, the, the middle of the first quarter next year, maybe the end of the first quarter next year, we're going to see a situation where there won't be that many job openings uh, of, available. Or if there are job openings, they're probably jobs people don't want. Hmm. What's the, when you talk to traders, Vince, out there, how concerned are they about a recession? I mean, there's a lot of, everybody's talking about it. Everybody's calling for it. But boy, the consumer's still strong out there. The consumer still has a job. Kind of, I don't know. What are you, what are you hearing? 
Well, I mean, the, the idea is, I mean, everybody thinks there's going to be a recession, most of the folks I talk to. But from a trader standpoint, whether it's a soft landing or whether it's a severe downturn, they can't predict that. So they don't actually price for it. That They'll price for that when it comes. Um, so we could see, if, if we have a, a mild downturn, a, a nice bid going into risk next year. Obviously, the opposite is true if we get a severe downturn. Um, but, you know, what they are talking about is essentially the feel that we're nearing a bottom, that feel that we're nearing a top in rates. Uh, you take a page out of the Bank of Canada's book this week, where they rose, uh, <laughs> rose, where they raised rates, and and then basically said we're nearing a pause. That they've done, uh, that their work has done its job on the economy, and a lot of uh, a lot of traders here in the states think that we're going to see something similar to that coming from the Fed. If it doesn't come next week, they'll expect it. They expect it to come uh, early next year. Surely they're doing. Surely this is the first of two fifty basis point hikes, right? No guarantees for February. I mean, next week I think is is in stone. But uh, I think February, um, we'll watch the data and, and and see where it goes. I mean, you know, we're starting to see some things, and this is in your wheelhouse. Um, used car prices are coming down, but um, new car prices have surged. So you're going to see a switch in consumer spending. You know, when when beef prices go up, people buy more chicken. Uh, when new car prices go up, people will probably go back to used cars or even uh, just delay a car purchase if, if they can. So those kind of things, from a, an inflation standpoint, when their way through the economy and take some pressure off the inflation scenario. You know who says we won't have a recession? Who's that? Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. She says the U.S. is going to avoid a recession. Talking Which is upper good. Book. Yeah. You know, it would. Be, when was the last time Vince you heard a Treasury Secretary say we're definitely going into a recession <laughs> next year? <laughs> Well, I mean, talk about talking your book, as a trader would say. I mean, she's she's got to be, you know, she's she's in the Biden camp. She has to speak to speak, um, and and frankly, I wonder you know, what it's like all- to go from you know an academic, uh, you know, an economist to well, as as the Fed chair, she already had a taste of it. But really, to 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 be a politician, you're just throwing away all of that data based <laughs> scientific, yeah. you know. Uh, stuff and and going completely to um you know talking your book it's got to be weird well i mean i give it to this way the way traders look at it when she was the chair of the fed she was listened to and respected as the treasury secretary no one trades on what she says anymore (laughs) because they know they know that you know she's saying what she has to say rather than what she wants to say and there was a time when she was in the closet for a long time and it's probably because she disagreed with the administration and and so they just kept her off the tape because they didn't want her to say anything that was that was uh, contrary to to what the, the picture they wanted to paint all right so if, if, if i'm a trader here for the rest of today and, and going into next week do i just wait on the cpi data is that the next data point and then of course the fed meeting on wednesday yeah, I mean, you know, whatever you're seeing today in PPIs and knee-jerk reaction, um, I wouldn't put a lot of uh, I wouldn't put a lot of credit in it. Um, you know, in fact, you know, big sell-off might be a buying opportunity going into CPI if CPI moderates. And Vince, just on the dollar, still no credible bear case out there for the U.S. dollar. It's it? come off a lot. Sure has yeah, come off yeah. a lot. Well, I mean, you know, you know what I've been saying. It's, it runs inverse to the S and P. So, you know, the day the Fed says uh, we're pausing for a while, um, and the S and P rallies, you'll see the dollar come off. 
uh, probably see a little steeper inversion until the Fed actually does begin to cut. Uh, but when that day comes, you're going to see a massive rally in the short end, and the days of the strong dollar will be over, at least temporarily. Yeah, we were up at yeah, we were. Uh, 1353. Yeah, we're off 6.8%. You're right. By the way, Vince, do you look at the Bloomberg dollar index? Because, you know, economists say it's a much better measure of dollar strength. But I know that, you know, traders probably grew up with DXY. Traders grew up with DXY. Bloomberg dollar index is a better measure. As you know, they they pretty much carbon copied my Wall Street Journal dollar index, which I created in 2012. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I have... I, I, I do sympathize with the Bloomberg dollar index. It, it captures way more data. Um, right. The ICE dollar index is pretty much a euro dollar index. It's, yep. It's, All right. Good stuff. Weighted that way. All right, Vince. Thanks so much for joining us there uh, from the confines of uh, Westchester. Vince Signorella, global macro strategist uh, with Bloomberg News, giving us his thoughts on In these way, markets. In a way, co-creator of the Bloomberg dollar index. Yeah. BBDXY index. Yep. That's the one I use now. I've been told by the people in the know. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. In our C-suite conversation today, we're going to talk a little fintech. The company is NCNO, NASDAQ symbols NCNO, to type in your Bloomberg professional tournament. The CEO and chairman joins us, Pierre Naudet. Pierre, thanks so much for joining us here. Uh, NCNO, tell us what you guys are doing in the fintech space. Yes, uh, good morning. Thanks for having me. We're doing uh, three very important things for banks. Uh, it is highly compliance-oriented and very complex for them, which is we onboard new customers. We originate every, any loan from the most complex uh, commercial loan all the way down to a simplistic personal loan, unsecured, and we open accounts. Those things are complex from a banking perspective, but should be very user-friendly and, and be able mobile to do it on your phone, etc., and, and we automate banks. We were the first one to actually take this into the cloud 10 years ago. And today we've got 1,750 customers around the globe. We operate um, in Asia Pac, Australia, Japan. We operate in Europe, as well as the uh, US and Canada. So, what has been the problem then in terms of the, the stock market? I mean, the 
the shares have just come down pretty steadily since 2020 from 90 to 25. That's correct. You know, uh, we have uh, 10 quarters in a row made and raised and beat our expectations. So as a result, I don't really uh, track the stock market as much. I'm focusing on my customers and my people. And I believe as these market cycles changes, uh, we will get the right valuation for the company. We are a growth company. We do realize that the market sentiment has changed from pure growth into profitable growth. And we emphasize this in our last um, earnings call that we are moving to for next year to a root of 30 company, which is a 20 plus 10. So we are going to do non-GAAP, uh, 10% of the bottom line at least. Uh, and I feel very optimistic. It's a good time for the company after 10 years to turn us from pure growth into a best-in-class profitable growth. Pierre, how, is, uh, how did the pandemic the last three years, how did that impact your business? The pandemic actually was uh, uh, pretty good for us because the government gave all this triple P money, uh, the payment protection plan, to banks and said distribute this, and they had no ways to do it. So Encino stepped in and distributed billions of dollars on behalf of the bank because our technology enabled them to you can do an online application and get the money to you. Uh, part of our growth story was, so we accelerated through the early stage of the pandemic, and then towards the end, um, some of that business went away, and that's what slowed down our growth rate, because year over year, you had a massive spike in growth, and then some of that business panned out. So um, it was a good thing for us. It accelerated um, digital transformation and the awareness of how people want to interact with banks. So I think long-term, it's a great thing for us. All right, Pierre, good stuff. Appreciate you taking a few minutes to check in with us, Pierre Naude, CEO and Chairman of Encino, a fintech company. It's uh, stock symbols NCNO, trades on the NASDAQ. We appreciate getting a few minutes of his time. Well, the Fed has been raising interest rates to combat inflation. And one of the areas where we've seen the impact most notably has been in the housing market, uh, you know, certainly feeling the negative impacts of higher interest rates. So we're going to get the latest on what's going on there in the construction business. John Fish, CEO and chairman of Suffolk Construction Group up there in the Boston area. John, thanks so much for joining us. Talk to us about kind of your business. How's your business been impacted by uh, rising interest rates uh, this year? Yeah. Well, man, Paul, again, thank you very much. It's an honor to, to be uh, involved this morning. You know, it's interesting, as, as we all know, real estate runs on credit. Uh, and the interest rates, uh, the higher they go, the more impact they have on our industry overall. And what we're seeing right now is the interest rates are climbing to six, six and a half percent for uh, you know, purchasing a house in today's day and age. It's really tamped down the demand for housing. People that have a you know two and a half percent mortgage don't want to move out of a two and a half percent mortgage into a six and a half percent mortgage. So my sense to be is I think the more these interest rates continue to climb, the more impact it's going to have on the overall economy. So what? Uh, is the focus of the construction you do at Suffolk? Well, what we do, we work all over the country with the different types of education, healthcare, and life sciences, and a variety of different types of work. But what we're seeing right now on the residential side and the commercial side, one, residential, it has slowed down. Projects aren't penciling out like they were, say, almost like, I would say, less than nine months ago because the impact of interest rates. The cost of funds are driving this almost to a standstill in many respects. Then on the office side, which I think is really crippling right now, as we all know, uh, with people working from home is have a devastating impact on the inner city areas and on small businesses, as we know. So to me, we need to figure out overall, how do we get people back in the seats, in their offices, and consuming in the small shops, pizza shops, coffee shops, and all the cities around America today? 
So, John, kind of where where are you seeing it in your business? Because uh, you know, I, I'm just looking at your website here. I know you do a lot of you know uh, uh, business uh, construction as as well as uh, residential. Where are you seeing it most notably? I, I would say right now it, it's in the areas uh, I right, right now in the east coast of the country and the west coast of the country. What we're seeing in the areas where it's more favorable from a tax point of view, I would say Texas in the southeast part of the country. There's more economic activity and momentum in those particular areas. They're in other particular areas. For example, in the Northeast, they just raised what is called a millionaire's tax that it raises 4% on state taxes. And although it's not significant, it is significant because again, it's piling on top of piling taxes on top of taxes. What we need to do, we need to open up the aperture from a business perspective because business drives our economy. What can we do to put people back in the seats, back to work, okay, and generate what I call the American dream? All right. So. Um we are in a situation that looks like it could get worse economically. A recession has been forecast by pretty much anybody um, uh, that we that we talk to. What's your outlook for the economy, say, in 2023? And how does that then further affect a business that, as you point out, has already been ground to a halt? Well, what, what, what my sense is right now, I look at it as like a patient. The patient is sick. The medication is interest rates right now. I think the hiring of interest rates the Fed is doing on a gradual basis is working. I think the 50 basis points are going to produce hopefully next week and not 75. I think we'll sort of send a signal that they are slowing uh, the, the rate rising going forward. But, and also what I see is the rate increase is having an impact on softening consumer demand and is driving down the demand issue. But what I really think is right now, we're always talking about the terminal rate of, of interest rates. I think now we're talking about the duration of where these interest rates are gonna go. Because I think the uncertainty driven by the duration is creating a lot, a lot of concern for the customer and the consumer. And that's why they're starting now to put more pile up on the sidelines from my perspective. John, talk to us about labor um, to build your projects. How has it been? How is it now? What are you guys trying to do to adapt? You know, it's a great question. I would say there's three, what I call the three eyes in our industry that we really keep an eye on. One is interest rates. And again, I said not determinable duration. The other was an inflation right now with the 7.7%. And I think that has a lot to do with pumping $3 trillion in the economy. And last is, I think we get a significant structural issue in America today that I think we need to Okay, both in Washington and the business we have to come to terms with. It's not only lower workforce participation or aging workforce or people working from home, it's all the above. And my concern is if we don't resolve this immigration issue in the United States of America, we are gonna become to a standstill and not able to produce because right now our workforce today is aged. It's different technologically from the tools that they're using. And also the sense to me is this lower workforce participation. We need to come to grips, and I think that's probably one of the most important issues government today in business has to come together and to try to solve. I mean, the likelihood of that happening, this is a well, third he, rail he, issue, he, right? He, well, he, here's my sense at the end of the day, right? Is we, we had the Gang of Eight talking about immigration back you know, two years ago. What I think we need to take that playbook out of the shelf and put it back on the table and start having some significant conversations about how do we get people back to work? And more importantly, how do we resolve this immigration to put people back to work, to increase the labor force participation, and hopefully increase productivity overall and efficiency. So John, and I, I know you guys have a big, big business. Uh, talk to us about regionality. Are you seeing areas of the country that are particularly weak, areas that are particularly strong, maybe bucking the trend? What are you seeing? 
What we see, we, we we're about a five and a half billion dollar business. We work nationally. And what we're seeing, as I pointed out, in the areas where it's more of a progressive approach to taxation and the overall attitude about business climate is we're seeing those particular areas being more impacted by the heightening of interest rates. In areas like, I said, in the southeast part of the country and in the Texas region right now, in, okay, what we're seeing is a, a more of an open door policy to try to make things work. And so we've grown our business significantly in the southeast part of the country. We're growing our business in the Texas region right now. And we are very, very bullish uh, on a going forward basis. Again, everything's relative. Again, we, we're not really sure what exactly the Fed's going to do over the next, I would say, two or three quarters. But my sense is demand will slow down. But in the good areas of the country with this favorable tax policy, there's labor availability like there is in Texas and the southeast part of the country. You're going to see a lot more economic vibrancy in those areas than you are in other areas where we don't see that. What, because of immigration? Well, I, no, no, because of the overall business climate. I think you see, you see a migration of people out of the northeast, uh, and especially in the New York, New Jersey area. I think the same thing is going to happen in the, in the Boston area. And I think the same thing from California, Arizona. So when you take a look at you know, the bi-coastal areas of people moving inland and down south, I, I really believe what's going to happen is those particular areas of our country are going to continue to grow, grow from, a, from driven by business. And I think at the end of the day, I think that is going to be really the pockets of growth over the next decade uh, that we need to really focus on. All right, John, great stuff. Always appreciate getting your perspective. John Fish. He is the CEO and chairman of Suffolk Construction Company, uh, commercial real estate uh, construction uh, on a national scale, giving us his sense of kind of the, the opportunities and the challenges. Of course, the key challenge uh, in that uh, part of the economy is rising interest rates, uh, making it tougher to get those projects done. Also calls out labor uh, as a challenge uh, as well, getting folks uh, on the site. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.